You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. You may follow along. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have Redemption Hill kids for ages 2 through 5 and grades 1 through 3. All right, you may be seated. Thank you, Andy. doing something nerve-wracking today for me, not you. Uh, I'm preaching from a a tablet, and uh, I've I've like sworn it off, but there's, I've been using a Logos for years, and um, they have this preacher mode. I'm going to try it. The last time I used a tablet, it shut off on me. (laughs) And uh, I think I've told this story before. We were in the park um, sometime in 2020. Uh, Brother Joshua over there had my Bible, so I didn't have that like as a reference. You know, I, you, normally in those situations, like you pick up your Bible and you just kind of walk people through the passage. But I didn't have that on me, and then also uh, I didn't have my phone on me. So you know, normally you pull out your phone out of your pocket and you kind of like look up your manuscript or whatever the text. And didn't have that on me, so I was I was flying blind, and I think the the, the message was like twenty five minutes minutes or something. And everyone's like, "Great sermon!" And I'm, I'm convinced it was a great sermon because it was only twenty five minutes. <laughs> As my wife said, no one ever complained about a short sermon. So, All right. It's a privilege to be back in the pulpit. Um, I want to thank Dean and uh, Ryan for their faithfulness to preach God's Word over the last two weeks. Uh, their willingness, I, th- I said this last week, their willingness to preach allowed me to focus on like local church administration and to attend to my denominational responsibilities, which was good. Uh, so it's a long story short, it's just a blessing to know there are other men in this church who, have, um, who are willing to preach and are faithful to preach God's Word. As a reminder, two weeks ago, Dean preached from Psalm 40, 46, and last week Ryan took us back to the book of Hebrews, and particularly took us to Hebrews 11. This morning, we're going to go back to, as you can tell, from the book of, to the book of Psalms, which means I'm going to pause the book of Hebrews. I'm going to pause because next week, uh, we're going to kick off a short sermon series for Advent called The Carols of Christmas. The Carols of Christmas. I have wanted to do this for a very, very long time. Uh, it, 
if you know me well enough, you know, like, I can sing Christmas carols all year long. Christmas in July. We had, the, we had the debate. Thank you. We had the debate over. Can you do it? You have to wait till Thanksgiving. Nope. Nope. Incarnational music. That's what I call it. It's how, that's, my, my, that's how I shoehorn that in. Who doesn't want to sing about the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Well, I say all that to say this. Um, I'm excited to preach on the carols of Christmas. Each week I'm going to take a popular carol, not like jingle bells or you know, none of that nonsense, but like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, right? And then we're going gonna, gonna to ask the question, what, what does Scripture tell us about this particular carol, this particular Christmas hymn? And I hope this approach will cause us to marvel at the incarnation of Jesus Christ while at the same time increasing our understanding of each carol. Like, you ever wonder, why do I sing that? Uh, we have the hymn, you ever sing the here I raise my Ebenezer. It's not a Christmas carol, but it's a hymn, right? When we sing that, like, what does Ebenezer mean? Like, I'm going to stop and pause and be like, okay, what is it that we're singing? Where from Scripture is this carol drawing from? And I hope that creates a depth for you um, about what we're singing, in particular about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to preaching, I rarely stray from the path, from the path right? But I think this can be a fun and, I hope, meaningful sermon series leading up to Christmas. As for today, why not get back to Hebrews? In the lead-up to celebrating our five-year anniversary as a local church, I began to think about the future of Redemption Hill. Six or seven years ago, before the Powers family and several other families relocated to the Des Moines metro, I was dreaming, planning, and praying with a five-year focus. And if you've ever been part of a young church, you understand why. There are a lot of variables that you're contending with. A lot of things you just don't know yet. Five years later, there are still variables to contend with, but now I think we have a history and experience to draw from. Five years later, there are different questions to ask because today's circumstances are vastly different than five years ago. Here's one example. We should no longer say that we're a church plant. Like that, in my opinion, that language no longer works. The majority of members of this church were not present on October 29th, 28th of 2018. Conversely, by God's grace, most people at Redemption Hill's first worship service are still a part of this church, which, by the way, is a statistical anomaly. The majority of churches do not make the five-year mark, and the majority of people in the initial church launch do not make it to five years. That's just the data points. I have no doubt in my mind that the hand of God is on this church. I have no doubt. But I'm not satisfied with beating the odds. I'm not satisfied with that. I think God has a whole lot more for this church. So here is what I'm doing this morning. I want us to look at God's word and ask the question, what would the Lord have for Redemption Hill in the next five years, in the next 10 years, in the next 50 years. By the way, that would put me at 92, right? Maybe dead. I don't know. 
What about the next 100 years? What might be in store for this church if the Lord wills it? I'm not satisfied with making the five-year mark, and nor should you be satisfied with that. Whether you've been a part of this church from the beginning or joined along the way, I want you to have a vision for the present and the future. Two Sundays ago, uh, Pastor Jack Flaherty at Harvest Bible Chapel shared a message from Psalm 78 at our joint parenting class that we did. He rounded out the six-week class where we attempted to help parents disciple their children in an ever-changing world. His message touched on a topic that I've just been considering for probably well over a year. Here's what I've been considering. What does it mean and what does it look like to be a part of something that will endure for generations? Endure for generations. As it pertains to the home, right? This is what the parenting class was about, in part. How do we disciple our children in a way that has a generational impact? Like, parents, you've got to be asking that question. How are you parenting that will have a generational impact? The same questions can be asked about the local church. What does it look like for the saints of Redemption Hill to be a part of a church that will endure and not endure for the sake of the name of Redemption Hill? I don't care about the name. I care about Christ and His message being proclaimed. Enduring for His sake. Here's a statement that is, I think, generally true, but I always know there are the exceptions, right? The health of a family or a local church can be measured in the present by how it invests and equips the generations to come. Let me say it again. The health of a family or a local church, the health, how, how healthy are we, right, can be measured in the present right now by how it invests and equips the generations to come. Dream with me for a moment. What if God establishes this church to be in the Des Moines metro for the next 100 plus years? Where Christ continues to be worshipped and the church, Lord willing, blesses the Des Moines metro. What, What if? That's what I want you to realize. That is what we're a part of at Redemption Hill. So I'm going to pray. Ask for God's help. And aside from my opening monologue, right, we'll get into God's word and hopefully be motivated by that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help me to be faithful to what you've already said and what you continue to speak. Help us to think well about your word this morning. And in terms of Psalm 78, Lord, we want to be a part of something that endures That's what we're going to see. That's what you've said. Help me to speak clearly and efficiently and effectively. I pray for my brothers and sisters in front of me that in the power of the Spirit, you will speak to them. pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. It's not unusual for me to ask questions to those who are older 
advice um, that they would give me as a younger person, right? Early in pastoral ministry, the church where I was a pastor had somebody in on a Saturday, and we took him out to lunch, and uh, we just sat with him. Um, and I simply asked him, let's just name him Jim Bob. I'm like, Jim Bob, what advice would you give me, a relatively young pastor? I think it was probably my first year in pastoral ministry, maybe year two, I don't know. He said, never forget that you are a follower of Jesus Christ first. You are a follower of Jesus Christ before you are a pastor, even before you're a father and a husband. He gave me great advice that has shaped how I approach my life. I remind myself of this advice often. I ask these type of questions to the older generation because I believe they have so much to offer a younger generation. There's something about being in the twilight of your life that provides perspective. It's not only older pastors that I like to solicit, I want to ask questions to those who have experienced things like, I'm just picking one thing out, like war. Have you ever sat down with a veteran and allowed them to share their story? If they can, right? Just tell me about it. You might hear about the good, the bad, and the ugly of war and all of its effects, especially on that particular individual. But you can learn from that. What is going on when an older generation is speaking to a younger generation? What's going on here? What happens when the sound advice of a seasoned pastor and the stories of a grizzled vet come into the ears of a 20-year-old, a 15-year-old, a a 10-year-old? Here's what's happening. History and culture are shared that can potentially transcend generations. You do not need to enter into another person's story, but you can understand and learn from their stories. Now let's put a distinctly Christian twist on this whole idea. The truths we share about God and the stories about the mighty works of God communicate a shared history that transcends generations, but also builds up subsequent generations. In my opinion, like an overlooked theme in the Bible is the necessity to think generationally. Psalm 78 tells us what happens when the people of God do not think generationally. Psalm 78 is long. I didn't know this until planning this sermon. It's the second longest psalm. And after a somewhat encouraging appeal between verses 1 to 8, which is what Andy read, we read this in verse 9 and 10. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. The Ephraimites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? One of the 12. Like they're a part of the team. God chose them. And they rebelled against God. The the theme continues throughout the rest of the psalm. We read this in 17 and 18 of Psalm 78. Yet they sin still against 
still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert as they were wandering in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They were more concerned about their desires than worshiping the one who rescued them out of Egypt. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, but they continued to whine and complain even though God repeatedly supplied their needs. There's one more stanza. I mean, after verse 8, what we have is like an indictment on Israel. That's what it is. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. I'm going to focus on verses 1 to 8, obviously, but the rest of the psalm is why verses 1 to 8 exists. Here's just a basic summary of verses 9 to 72. God led Israel out of Egypt and through the desert in the time of Moses. That is the theme of like part one of verses 9 to 90, or 39, which often echoes the book of Exodus. Part two, verses 40 to 72, brings the story down to the time of David. So from Moses to David, God was with his covenant people, even though God's covenant people kept rejecting him. The psalm opens with an encouragement to think generationally because this is what happens when people are not told about the deeds, the greatness, and the wonders of the Lord, right? They end up just walking away from the Lord. I don't want to stray too far from the path, but there are church buildings all across the Des Moines metro filled with people that function like a country club or a community center and not Christ's church. There are beautiful church buildings that were once a place of genuine worship to God, but today when you walk into the building, there is just no sense of the Almighty. Like, I hope you sense that here this morning. We, we come here to worship the Almighty God. And in many churches, it just doesn't exist. And why is this? How does a church go from a place of worshiping the Almighty to, frankly, just like worshiping the self? Part of the reason is that a different message was preached to a next generation, right? Often a secular message was and is being preached to that next generation. As a result, we have a bunch of Ephraimite churches. That's what we have. But may that never be the case of Redemption Hill Church. May that never be the case. As we consider what it means to think and act generationally, may the Lord, may Jesus Christ always be the focus. Always. May Christ be the focus in his teaching. May we come under that. We must never lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. He not only died on the cross, he walked away from the tomb and he ascended to heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. May that message 
May we never lose sight of it. His lordship has massive implications. And instead of thinking generationally, people tend to think momentarily. People are concerned about what needs to be achieved in the moment. In other words, people disconnect the present moment from the mandate, mandate, strong word there, to build into and build up the people that are generationally behind them. Growing up, um, I often heard from my pops, it's all going to burn. I heard statements like, I may as well spend it all before I die. It's my pops talking to me. When a statement like that is made, what is not in view? Answer, the next generation and then the generation after that. This morning, I'm not looking to tell the older generation how they may have gotten it all wrong. I have my observations, but there's a better use of our time. And frankly, I can point the finger at my own generation, right? There are things in my generation where we're just kind of getting it wrong, right? But my goal this morning is to show you from Psalm 78 how we can get it right. I want to show you from this psalm what it looks like to invest in the next generation and why investing in the next generation is good. Let's not say it's all going to burn, but let's say, how can I leverage what I have for the kingdom of God and for those who are coming behind me? How can I leverage what I have so that my children's children, right, them, so that they will hear about the Lord? Sometimes this means being willing to change your perspective. Now let's really zero in on Psalm 78, verses 1 to 8. Take a look at verses 5 and 6. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. God calls his people to teach the next generation so that they, they might be equipped to teach their children. Of course, the most natural place where this needs to be done is the family. Shared truths and stories about the grace and mercy of God connect grandma, daughter, and granddaughter, right? The local church is where God also, where God and the gospel and the wondrous deeds of God are also proclaimed. It is because of God that we you know, rejoice. It's because of God that we must think generationally. I, I love the, take a look at verse 6. I love the emphasis of verse 6. If you got your Bible, look at it. What we do right now impacts, it says in the text, unborn children. <laughs> I find that to be an amazing text. Like just, just pause for a moment. When was the last time you thought to yourself, what am I doing right now in my life to impact the unborn? <laughs> but that is exactly what we read in Psalm 78. What we do right now, what we teach, and the stories of God that we tell impacts people that we will never meet. 
never meet. So here are three broad categories that emerge from Psalm 78, verses 1 to 8, that can allow you to impact people that you will never meet. These categories emphasize how we are to engage the next generation for God. First, we want to teach true stories about God. We need to do that. That happens in many different ways, coming out of God's word. Second, we got to show a reason to have hope in a world where there's so much hopelessness, usually, usually drawn from our complaining and grumbling or our concern. We need to remember we have every reason to be a hopeful people. And then third, we can't ignore the warnings. Part of the reason why Psalm 78 exists is to serve as a stark warning. If we need to teach generationally, then we need to know what to teach. Let's look at what is being shared about God to the next generation. Read with me verses 1 to 4. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable... I will utter dark sayings from old. That idea of, of dark sayings are like, um, it's kind of connected to the idea of a parable. So don't think like demonic or dark. That's not what's being communicated here. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. I want you to see the emphasis is on the people of God pleading with the next generation to listen to them. They have something to say to them about God. The focus in this particular passage is not, I am the Lord your God, give ear to me. Like There are plenty of psalms that have that accented. Like God is saying, listen to what I have to say. As if God is speaking directly to his people. However, in this passage, the accent is on people telling other people about God. It is not much different than me telling you right now, as your pastor, hey, can you give me 30 minutes? Can you give me 30? Because I have a whole lot to tell you about God. The reason why this is important is because you and I are called to be involved in God's plan to teach the next generation. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no space, no space to delegate this responsibility. None. If you're on the boat, you grab an oar. So, if you're called to grab the oar and row, what will you tell others about God? Verse 4 says that we are to tell the coming generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord. We tell the coming generation about his might and his wonders. The Old Testament, man, I've been thrilled going through the book of Hebrews as it's, you know, thrusted us back into the Old Testament where we see so much about the wonderful deeds of the Lord. It, the Old Testament is filled with stories that we need to share. So often it gets painted as stale, right? Totally not true. There are stories about the deeds, might, and wonder of God. I have a treasure trove that I could choose from, but here's just one. <laughs> just want to share it because it's, it's how we apply what we read in Psalm 78. In, in 1 Kings 18, one of those, you know, historical books that's a dry read, right? Well, if you think that, listen to this story. 
we have something of a duel. The duels between Baal and Yahweh. In one corner, representing the false god Baal, is a bunch of prophets. 450 of them, as a matter of fact. 450 prophets of Baal in one corner. They have sworn allegiance to their false god. In the other corner, you know who's there? One dude, Elijah. Here's how Philip Ryken describes the situation. In one corner was Baal, the storm god of the Canaanites, with all his backers. 22 score and 10 prophets on the government's payroll. That's so funny. Maybe it's just funny to me. In the other corner stood the Lord God of heaven and earth with his only prophet, Elijah. Imagine like in the gym right now. If you can just fit him in, 450 prophets of Baal. And like Elijah's just standing there being like, what's up? So what's going on? So what is the duel all about and what is, what is at stake. By the time you get to 1 Kings 18, the kingdom of Israel, which was consolidated previously under King David, had broken into two, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And the northern kingdom is the prophet of God, Elijah, and he has much to say about the rebellion and idolatry throughout the land. In particular, Elijah calls out King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They are in the crosshairs of Elijah because Baal is being worshipped throughout the land and not the one true God, Yahweh. So you see the tension, right? You see the tension in this wonderful story. In order to demonstrate the power of God, Elijah challenges Ahab to a contest. It's about to go down. Both sides build an altar, right? Like a table. And the prophets of Baal and Elijah needed to pray to their God that they would start a fire and burn the respective offerings, the burnt offerings, on each altar. Not surprisingly, the prophets of Baal pray in vain. There is no fire. Nothing. Nada. Now, if I stop the story right there, I'd be like, okay, great. But! But! It's Elijah's turn. These are the mighty deeds of God, right? To show God's power and might, and that it's unquestioned, Elijah has four jars of water poured on the burnt offering. Think about that. Try to start a fire with that. And then there's like a canal built around the altar and water's poured into that. There is no way Elijah is going to be accused of like starting a fire on the sly. He's got like a match up his sleeve and whatever. Only the power of God starts the fire. And that is what happened. Elijah prayed. Allow me to repeat Psalm 78, verses 3 and 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Not only do we not hide all that God has done, but we need to swing the barn doors wide open so that every generation will see the mighty power of God. Like, listen, we serve a God who starts fires to display his glory on earth. That is the God you worship. <laughs> That's crazy. It's awesome. It's mighty. 
why do we tell stories about God? Like the one I just pulled from 1 Kings 18. Why do we, why do we gather our children and say, hey, listen, Izzy, Chloe, I got something to tell you. I have something to tell you about God. The answer is found in verse 7. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. We tell these stories so that they might have hope and not forget. Here's the connection between not forgetting and hope. How in the world can the next generation have hope in God if they do not know what he has done? Right? Connected to God's plan of redemption are events and moments where we see the hand of God at work in his creation. We see how God is providentially at work so that his glory might be seen on the earth. Look, when you go back and read all of Psalm 78, that is the point being made. Look at what God has done here and there and over there. And after you remember that God called down manna and then brought water from a rock, don't forget that he split the sea. Part of the foundation that we need to lay right now here at Redemption Hill is to give reasons why we have so much hope in God. 1 Peter 3.15 As we've seen, the book of Hebrews is a reservoir of hope. But here's just one verse from that passage, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession. We can say that word confession is like all the stories that we know about God and his mighty deeds hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The hope we have in God is not theoretical or abstract. It's not merely an idea, right? That's that's generally how we think of hope sometimes. A Christian's hope is grounded in God, in God himself, in, in his ongoing faithfulness to demonstrate his glory, display his glory on earth. A Christian's hope is verified by the mighty works of God. I mean, I've already told you about Elijah, right? Elijah in 1 Kings 18. But there's so much more I can point to. I have hope in God who split the Red Sea and later split the Jordan River. I have hope in God because he can use thunder to destroy the Philistines, 1 Samuel 7. Thunder! Just thunder! I have hope in that God. I have hope in God who saved faithful Daniel from a den of lions, Daniel 6. I have hope in God because when he makes a promise, you know he's going to fall through on that promise. You can take it to the bank. God is batting 1,000 when it comes to fulfilling his promise. His promises. Like, I'm just going to pause momentarily like, and speak directly to the next generation. Like, so if you're younger than me, right? So I'm 42, 41 on down. I mean, not that anyone else can listen. You certainly can, but younger than me, listen up. Has someone ever made a promise to you but did not follow through on that promise? 
Have you ever made a promise and did not follow through on that promise? I'm answering, I'm guessing the answer is yes. It stinks when someone says they will do something, but then it doesn't, there's no follow through. But here's what I want to ask you now. Can you trust in God who has fulfilled in everything he has promised? Can you trust in that God? Here's another example of God fulfilling his promises. God promised that he would send someone into the world to save the world. Go read Isaiah chapter 7 and 9 if you want to know more about what I'm talking about. Like beginning next week, we will start our Advent series. What is the Advent series all about? It's about the mighty works of the triune God where the Father sent the Son into the world to save the world. It is through the birth of Jesus Christ that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. Every generation, mine and yours, should always remember the mighty and miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. Do not ever forget. It's these kind of stories that we need to continually tell ourselves and then the next generation. Now, it is the responsibility of a current generation to make sure that the generations behind them know about God. We do not know whom God will save. We don't know that. But we need to ensure they know about God. The end of Verse 7 leads us to the reason why. But keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Like, let's not be confused here. That generation being spoken about in verse 7, 8, they, they knew God. And they continually rebelled. That God was doing, doing mighty things in their midst. And yet, it says, the heart was not steadfast. Spirit was not faithful to God. We saw this in Hebrews 3 and 4, if you remember. Israel's lack of faith in God when they were wandering in the wilderness. Their wandering serves as a warning. Between now and the next hundred years... We don't want to wander. We don't want to act like Israel. We want to stay focused on Christ, his gospel, and his teachings. God did mighty things in their generation, yet they did not follow God. They continually rebelled against God. It's like they had amnesia, right? God would do something wonderful and mighty, oftentimes to provide and protect his people, and then the people would immediately become disinterested in the thing that God had just done for them. Just pause for a moment. Like, I'm trying to point this out over and over. I want you to see the providential hand of God on this particular local church. Like we, statistically, we shouldn't exist, and here we are. Like, let's, not, let's not have amnesia. Let's not get to the wandering point. Let's thank God and praise God and remember his wondrous deeds. The psalmist is pointing to a perpetual problem that every generation faces. 
Either the God who created and sustained the world will be worshipped, or someone or someone else will be worshipped. It's either Christ or the Baals of our day. In our day, in the 21st century America, it's either God or, the, or I think, the predations of secularism. Listen, the human heart is designed for worship. The question is who or what will be worshipped. Is the current generation, like my generation, willing to invest? Are you willing to sacrifice and instill a beautiful and mighty vision of God to the next generation? It does take investing. It does take sacrifice. It does take time. Are we willing to warn them not to become like our fathers who wandered in the desert and constantly rebelled against God? Suppose I am advocating, and I am, that we become a church that thinks generationally. In that case, we want Redemption Hill to be a church that exists 100 years from now and maintains its laser-like focus on Jesus Christ. But how do we do that, right? It's one thing to say, go teach, but what's the mechanism now for doing that? What steps are we going to take in the present, immediate, and long-term future to create the opportunity to be a generational church? What are we going to do? We all know, we heard the phrase, Rome wasn't built in a day. True statement. But I bet you someone came with the blueprint on the first day. The vision, in part, of a vision I will give you right now might seem audacious and impossible. Well, I want to remind you that we serve a God who starts fires on wet altars. <laughs> right? We serve a God who split the Red Sea. We serve a God who raises the dead. Here's a perfect passage for casting a vision and for anyone following a vision. It's from Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I know it's a popular proverb, but you see the relationship here between our duty and God's sovereignty. I know I can say a thing, but the Lord will always have his way. That said, here are a couple patterns that I see in the Bible that can help us become a generational church. We need roots that run deep. And in my opinion, we need to become a church planting church. Start with the first one. We need to pray, and that's where everything begins. We need to pray for greater permanency in our city. When I say city, I mean the Des Moines metro. We want to have roots that run deep. Being at Schuler is great. We might be here for a while, but it is good to pursue roots in our city so that we can be a blessing to our city, so we can share Christ to our city. Oh, what would it be like for our children's children to be married, perhaps in a building called Redemption Hill? Right? A greater sense of permanency will have a generational impact. Listen, I understand, like, this isn't happening tomorrow. Probably not going to happen in the next five years. Maybe it will. I don't know. But we need to posture ourselves 
in such a way that have greater permanency. We need to pray in such a way that the Lord would provide. Second, I do want us to pray about planning another church. Not tomorrow, not next week, not even a year from now, not even, probably not even five years from now, frankly. Maybe. I mean, it seems crazy to suggest this point. Redemption Hill has only been around for five years. However, as we become increasingly more established, I hope and pray we can send out others to plant roots and be a part of building another Christ-exalting church. Planning a church will require teaching the next generation, Psalm 78.1. It will require telling them about the wonderful deeds of God, Psalm 78.4. It will require warning them to not be like Israel who grumbled their way through the wilderness, Psalm 78.8. Perhaps it will be our children who take the steps of faith to lead or join a church plant. Maybe that's what's going to happen. Might not be any of you. Could be our children or our children's children. But I think it's important to be thinking that way. That's how, you become, that's how you make an impact generationally. We are focused on worshiping Christ in the presence with an eye toward the future. I mean, I have different additional thoughts regarding like global missions, discipleship, especially education. But these two big ideas are the engine that moves the rest of the bus. I know that we need to continue to build and grow here. Yes and amen, and we will. I have many thoughts on that. But we build and grow with a consideration for what God has for us in the future. We have a consideration for those, going back to our text, who are not yet born. Right? And we do so for the glory of God. That's why we do it. Man, it's not lost on me. All y'all serve in a capacity for this church week over week, month over month, year over year, leading up to five years. And it's all for the glory of God. And we praise God for that. I'll repeat something I said at the beginning of my message, and then I'll pray. And we'll transition to celebrating the Lord's table. The health of a family and a local church can be measured in the present by how we invest and equip the generations to come. Last time I'll say it. The health of a family and a local church can be measured in the presence by how it invests and equips the generation to come. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.